netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, and welcome to this FX Podcast. I'm Mike Seymour, and this is our 358th FX Podcast. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I did promise that John Montgomery would be back from holidays by now, and, and he isn't, but I promise he will be absolutely for the next uh, episode. This week on the show, we're talking to Rob Legato, who was the second unit director on Equalizer 3, which has just had a, a stellar opening weekend in the US. Now, as you probably gathered by now, we decided to talk to a few friends of FX Guide on related onset roles. So we had a FX podcast recently on Hijack, where we were talking to the DOP. And now with Rob, we're talking about Equalizer 3, which he wasn't actually the VFX supervisor on. Obviously, Rob Legato is an incredibly accomplished uh, visual effects supervisor, but actually James McGuire was the VFX supervisor. But we were just interested in this role of second unit directing. So in addition to discussing Equalizer 3, you'll hear in a minute Rob and I discussing a bunch of other uh, interesting projects that he did second unit on. As he himself will tell you, he basically developed a habit of doing second unit directing on any film that he was also supervising. So here now is multiple Academy Award winner Rob Legato speaking about the film Equalizer 3, and in particular, the role and the skill required to be a really first-rate second unit director. So Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So on Equalizer 3, you're second unit director, but I didn't see you with a visual effects credit. Did you not do visual effects? What was the situation? No. You know, I, I, I made suggestions and things like that, but uh, there was another uh, gentleman, uh, James, who was the uh, visual effects supervisor. Uh, and he originally I was supposed, uh, the story was, uh, originally I was supposed to do it, but it was not necessarily looking like it was going to happen or not. And and then I was going to do this Kevin Costner film, which I had to kind of make a choice. And so I was never really getting a, a total confirmation from um, Anton's uh, camp. Um, and so I just had to make a call and Kevin was pushing pretty hard. So I, I chose to do that. And then I discovered while I was doing that movie that it wasn't really working out for me as well. Um, not that I didn't get along with Kevin, but it was like he had a different opinion of, of how he wanted to work with me doing second unit and stuff like that. And so I, um, I, I, uh, you know, at one point decided that maybe I, I, it wasn't for me. The Western, the Western film wasn't for me. So I called the band on and they already hired James at that point. That's James McQuaid, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but then he, he, we got along super well on, on, um, emancipation. Uh, so he wanted me to do second unit, uh, in, uh, in Italy, uh, for him and delighted to do. Yeah. We talked about, uh, your second unit directing when you were doing emancipation and, uh, that terrific sequence of the seemingly impossible, um, battle sequence of, uh, that seemed <laughs> quite frankly to be almost like a suicide mission, but, uh, so interestingly, uh, set up, tell me moving forward, do you just want to keep doing this balance of visual effects supervising and second unit, or would you like to move just into first unit uh, as being a, just a director of your own film? Well, I'd love to direct my own films as well. And in the meantime, I've always done second unit on almost all of my uh, visual effects movies. I was always a second unit director on all the Marty movies, starting with Aviator. I was going to say, on Aviator, um, you did that amazing sequence, didn't you, with the uh, crash and stuff? Yeah, 
and I and I shot like hundreds of other shots and and a, a dialogue scene uh, for the crash where it was uh, his uh, his associate was t- t- talking him down as he was flying over and trying to hit the golf course, which of course he hit the uh, the house yep. on Linden. So um, you know, the, Marty let me direct that uh, little scene, and I did a couple pickups with with Leo. While Marty was in New York, I was out here, uh, all that stuff. So I, I shot quite a bit. And then on every Marty movie after that, on The Departed, I did the whole, um, you know, shoot at at the end and stuff like that. And, and I, you know, I love doing it. I'm a cameraman by sort of by nature. And uh, that's what I studied in film school. And I love to direct. And because of my kind of visual effects background and my, you know, the second unit, I, I kind of know how to economize and shoot with very little, make it look like I have a lot more because I, you know, it's the way you edit it and what's not in the frame instead of what is in the frame. And and if I can match Bob Richardson's lighting, which is beautiful and the, the, the way people like to shoot, people tend to like it because it fits right in. So I like the, the ability to kind of do all of it if I can. And then, you know, a lot of times I design sequences, you know, starting with Apollo with the with the uh, uh, launch sequence and the, some of the, the space things, you know, where it's not just I don't I don't just execute people's storyboards. I make up make up the scene, work with the director, whether he likes it or not, or embellish it or not or whatever. And then I usually photograph and sometimes it has a lot of live action elements in it. So I've always kind of done that and I've always. Um, you know, uh, uh, I, I sort of almost in, insist that I do second unit if I'm going to be the visual effects supervisor anyway, because of the nature of that. And a lot of times I end up doing just full on, like I did in Emancipation and and uh, and this movie, um, uh, just do full on scenes and sequences and things that the first get to. Because you've got such a strong visual effects background, but obviously similarly you have such a strong cinematography background, do you like to previs complicated sequences or how do you like to sort of, what's your preparation process? Well, I, I like to previs because I like to confirm or deny my thought process that it's, you know, the certain, at a certain point I don't need to previs as much as I did when I first started because now I have a lot of experience and I know by walking through the sets, like, yeah, I can put a camera here, the camera here, and, and I know it's going to work. Uh, but if I have to convince somebody of something or I just want to confirm an editorial rhythm that I'm trying to get it, because a lot of the things to get kind of good quality work done in a fairly short period of time, you sort of have to uh, economize how many setups you do and what the setups are worth and what you're going to use. You don't just blindly shoot and then wait for somebody to cut it together. You know that I can cut this scene together pretty well, but I but I only really need three setups to do a good job because if I do eight or nine, I am kind of wasting my time because they're not going to be in the movie, and um, then I don't I don't get as much footage done. So the editing portion is like, oh yeah, I just need a close up and an over, and then I have to uh, do a specialty shot for this, and it's kind of like you know, me thinking out loud, and I can't draw. So previous becomes <laughs> something, and then, Sorry. And then I- just the thought of you not being able to draw seems like an anathema to me. But okay, sure. Oh, oh, well, if you saw me draw, you would go, oh, you can't draw. Um, you would know instantly that that was a, 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 was a weak point. Um, kind of the most but, visual guy I know, Rob. <laughs> well, well the, the thing is I photograph, I could take a picture of something. And sure. back in the day, we'd even try to do storyboards. I would have to get little G.I. Joes and like my son's G.I. Joes and stuff like that and stage it and then turn it into a line drawing in Photoshop 
create the illusion that it was a storyboard, but I could frame something, you know, I can, I can, you know, I know how to shoot something. So I, I never had that skill and I was never good at it. And probably why I don't like storyboards is I do notice when somebody else does them, they're not really a cameraman. The logic of how to shoot something is, is not, is apparent once you start to do it. You go, well, that doesn't make any sense. I would never do that. And, never, and where you naturally do it yourself, oh, the camera would be here, and this would happen here, and this would all those things uh, would would suggest a different way of the of storyboarding. So it's like, well, I know that that person isn't doing it, so I don't want to do that, and I tend to do it on my own uh, so, with, with graphic so, uh, uh, authority than than not. So obviously, in second unit director, you do highly technical sequences, and uh, we'll come back, I guess, to that in a second. But but when you're working with actors, because of course you do second unit where you're just working with the actors, do you like to do that sort of process of having them walk the space and let them sort of find that space and then see how they are in the space before you work out those angles? Or how prescriptive do you like to be in your head before you get on set? I generally don't. What was, has worked for me is... Uh, and, and I suggested for everybody who's doing it, you walk through it as an actor. What would make you feel comfortable? I wouldn't sit over here. I'd sit over here. This makes more sense uh, to me doing this and doing that. So when I block it out, this is a general uh, a general statement. Uh, when I block it out, it's already kind of with the actor in mind in terms of that you can perform it. And I find that the actors, you know, I show them, you know, and they could change it if they want to, because you want to give them the opportunity to, if you don't like something, but I walk them through it and they see the logic of it. They see that, oh, well that, yeah, I would do that. And I would do that. You know, I, I would sit over here instead of there. I would get up at this line and uh, do that. And, you know, I'm, I'm loose enough where, you know, you don't do exactly, I don't, it's not nailed down. You have to go exactly here, exactly there. but the rough in is pretty much, I've already, and usually when I'm doing something too, second unit, I usually have a por partial set. I don't have the whole thing. So some things don't suggest I could do anything I want. So I aim it, I aim the, the camera towards the light. So it's already nicely lit right off the bat and the they're placed in certain ways that make them look photographically you know correct and all that so it matches the movie so I, I, for the most part i mean be very fortunate and and uh, um you know i don't take myself too seriously so i don't put off the actors in terms of like you know do exactly what i'm telling you to do it's loose it's like yeah, try it you know i mean i learned a lot from marty actually yeah well, sort of indirect and you direct by direction it doesn't and, uh, hurt to work with directors of the caliber of Martin Scorsese. That's for darn sure. But hang on, when when you're taking your direct, the other thing that you, you just touched on it super briefly then is you have to be not developing a different visual language from that that's been developed by the director, right? So you have to be making your decisions in kind of the not in the shadow, but in the you know through a lens, I guess, of of their interpretation of how they see if they're all on wides and low wide close up shots or whatever. That's got to be the style of the film. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing from doing this for as long as I have and my sort of philosophy of doing it is um, I'm pretty quick study in terms of I could I could feel the visual style of what we're doing. I I, I could see how I, I only have to see it for an hour. It's like, oh, we're doing this. We're staying on 40s. We're not we're not doing super wide or whatever. And usually my taste has been adjusted to that. Like if I know I'm shooting The Godfather, I'm not going to shoot it like a Michael Bay movie. It just it wouldn't come up. So I would automatically 
do this more classic, um, uh, um, you know, almost theatrical uh, uh, framing uh, uh, type thing. It just would, that would be the first thing that would appeal to me to shoot the shot. So I'm, I'm already in the head of the film and the filmmakers, which include the, the DP. So I, it, it doesn't really come up too much that my style is is uh, uh, totally influencing. And, you know, for the most part, there is some leeway where I would think, well, here's a much cooler angle to actually establish the same shot. I like to do things in one if I can. And I like, you know, not intricate camera moves that look intricate on film, but they're intricate to produce, to create. And so my brain sort of goes there. It's part and parcel of being a visual effects supervisor too, where things are not what they seem in person. It only seems that way on film when it's layered correctly. So I'm seeing the finished product. And then I know enough mechanically as a cameraman, Dolly track goes here. You start over this way. This happens. The actor is going to take you and whip you around here. And I'm going to be over here. And I can operate those shots pretty well. Um, it's harder for me to operate a shot of somebody getting out of a chair, but I could do kind of intricate crane moves and things like that. But uh, so you, everybody you has touched, a limitation. You touched then on Michael Bay. And for people that don't know, they might have thought you were using that as shorthand. But in fact, you were on ambulance, weren't you? Michael Bay's ambulance. Yeah. And, and again, you automatically shift into his style, which is low cameras, uh, cameras always moving, 17 millimeter lens, uh, you know, cool light, cool angle, cool, you know, and that kind of carries, like I wouldn't do that on a Marty film, but that carries the day on a Michael Bay film and not even equating like, okay, one's better than the other. It's just, you know, when you, you know, it's their visual when language. You, when you walk into that um, uh, setup, your brain shifts into that gear um, you know, like if you're, you know, if you're doing a, you know, a, a scary horror movie, you wouldn't think, you know, comedically in terms of camera setups and pieces of action, you, your brain just doesn't go there. So I never found it to be any kind of conflict. And, you know, I, and I think also when I first started, uh, when you don't really know all that much, all you really want to do is to make it look like it fits into the movie that you didn't all of a sudden it was, it's a great film and all of a sudden it gets into something clunky and then it goes into a great film again it's like even so that's my philosophy for visual effects anyway is i want that shot not to be so specialized that it sticks out that's why i don't like it overly storyboarded or overly art directed it should just feel like it's another shot that just happens to tell the story with things that we're going to put in later so if so it, it automatically doesn't bump from viewing it where, okay, now we're in the locked off, you know, visual effects or pristine shot. We're into, you don't even know that it's happening, that kind of thing. So my second unit work is, is based on that as well, where just you, you want it to fit in and then it became, well, that's really the style that you want to keep because you do want to make it look like, you know, Marty directed it and Bob Richardson shot it or Antoine Fuqua directed it and Bob Richardson shot it or Caleb Dash. You know, you want it to feel like that um, and not be so individualized because that doesn't serve the movie. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, when we think of your work, we think of, you know, Hugo and The Lion King and all those sort of things. And of course, in The Equalizer, which we'll come to in a second, I promise, um, and Ambulance, these are effects films. But uh, you also were second unit director on Air recently, right? Um, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, not, no that's not a typical kind of an effects film. It's not. I mean, it's a great film. I loved it to death, right? But how did that fit into the kind of Rob? Well, that was, story? I mean, it was 
very little. It's like they were, they were shooting only in, in Santa Monica. So they, that, that's, so anything that suggested they were in Portland, they were in um, uh, uh, the South, you know, I did. And, you know, it's mostly driving, you know, it wasn't all that fancy a thing I was doing, but it was enough to, again, balance the movie where it doesn't feel like you're sequestered in one area that it's opened up enough, but not trying to make too much of a point of it. Like, you know, let me like go out there and do some specialized filming to, 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 to draw more attention to what's just necessary to tell the, tell the story. And I love to shoot. I, I, I truly do. So staging, I love staging stuff and staging, you know, anything, cars, people, extras, you know, with light and the way the camera moves. And, and again, you know, because I have usually a limited number, I think in sequences and not shots where I could create the illusion there's, you know, two streets full of people by shooting a portion at a time. And when you cut it together, it looks like you have everything. You have know, you worked be with Ben Affleck before, the director of Air? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, uh, you know, I haven't worked with him before. But Bob did, and Bob suggested. I mean, Bob has been very uh, happy, especially of late. But I've done all the all the films I did with Marty that Bob shot. I was yep. a second unit and he has learned to appreciate that when I light and shoot something, it looks like he did. Right. Not like my own version of the movie. I'm doing the version that fits into the narrative and and uh, he will sometimes get complimented on a cool shot that he did. And it's like, well, he did it, you know, not that. <laughs> so, so that, but he loves that in that it doesn't look like, how come you did that shitty shot? It looks like, how, you know, how'd you do that cool shot? You did? Uh, so, um, um, so I'm going to talk about Equalizer if we can, because I, mm -hmm. I, I love it. I thought it was really good film. And actually, oh. in many respects, it surprised me because it didn't lean heavily, as many sequels do, on the sort of, uh, I'm not sort of signature points, but, you know, there were points from the original films and it sort of felt, like it wasn't just going to rely on those. It felt like it's its own film. So I really liked Equalizer 3. Um, it was probably not the hardest gig you had just shooting the entire thing in Italy, right? They were gorgeous locations. It was not the worst thing in the world to do. <laughs> and uh, I, I'll just uh, admit, you know, that it wasn't, you know, because we always like to say, well, you know, it must have been really hard. It's like, yeah. Well, it was hard to decide where we could eat at night. <laughs> There was, was equalizer three at, is can start contrast to emancipation in that respect, right? Where you were like in swamps and kind of not in the. And, and the choice to eat is who will let you walk in when you look like that is, uh, is part of the thing. This one had a, a little different, but I loved, you know, again, I love shooting too. So I loved doing it. And even in emancipation, it was really hard. I mean, like the, the physicality of it was yeah. hard in mud and murk and mosquitoes and snakes and you know, crocodile. I mean, or alligators, you, 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 all that stuff, but you're, you're shooting good stuff. And there's something about when you shoot something that's good, it kind of alleviates the, uh, the, the pain of childbirth, I think to some degree and your memory of it. So and, uh, on yeah, emancipation, I know that you wanted some specialist setups for that uh, sequence. We already referred to the, the battle sequence and you built a crane rig and stuff. Was there any similar occasion on uh, Equalizer 3 where you said, to get this, I need to do something a bit outside the norm? Or like, what was the, was there a set of sequence I, or shot that followed the same I, script? I, it wasn't quite that way. I mean, I, uh, I've grown to love working on a remote crane 
quite mm-hmm. a bit. So part of my vocabulary for doing the film where I could make stuff happen that also fits in the way Bob shoots um, and, and does it. There was some car chase stuff and some motorcycle things and motorcycle rigs I did that were uh, fun to shoot. And again, it was another one of those challenges where you have a camera car, you have one night and X number of people. The hard part always, which is now different, by the way, because of AI, is that um, uh, you have to avoid the stunt guys who don't look like the principals who are supposed to be on the bikes. So you have to devise shots that are dynamic and don't make you miss, like, how come I'm not seeing him? And then have a special rig for a couple of close-ups. And then you have to make those look like they fit into the narrative. Like there's a, the lead guy, the, the brother who gets... Um, uh, it's a the younger brother? brother? Yeah, the younger brother. He yep. can't ride him. So anytime oh, really? you saw him bike, we were on a specialized rig that was towing him. And then I would devise the shots where I pan off of something and onto him, or I start at the back wheel, which is on the ground, but he's not. And I tilt up and I try to disguise the fact that he's not, he can't really ride and he, and he's in a, in a specialized thing. And it's, and it's not that easy to do. And then devise the other parts of the sequence. So it makes a logical sense to cut to him in this particular arrangement. So, I mean, the fun part is the, is the uh, three-dimensional chess game you have to play. Um, here's what I have to work with and how do I maximize my day and maximize my on-screen effectiveness where you don't miss what you don't see. Now with AI, you can do a face swap like in minutes and it looks spectacularly good. You know, I I don't have to avoid the stunt double. Um, we, on, on Equalizer, this guy named Clay is, um, is Denzel's uh, stunt double. Uh, and and double, and he looks similar enough to him. He moves just like him. He's an expert at fighting and all that stuff. And besides, the, one of the greatest guys in the world I've ever worked with. And I it pained me to have to avoid seeing his face during a fight altercation because I did a lot of the, a lot of the uh, fight scenes and the kills, um, which sadly are fun to do. You know, they should be they should be distasteful, but they're actually kind of fun to uh, set up too. Um, but. At any rate, you know, I have to avoid his face where it would enhance the shot and the believability of the sequence. If you, you know, picked off something really quickly and you saw the real Denzel doing it, now with the AI face swapping stuff, it'd be, you could do that and it would be great. And that just changed in months. You know, that just changed months yeah. later. So when you said that fight sequence, are you talking about the original fight sequence that sort of flashed back to or the end big fight uh, sequence? No, I did. Uh, the the uh, There's a bunch of kills along the way. I don't know if you remember when he's uh, flipping um, um, the wine bottle and he smashes yep. the guy in the face, and then part of the fight where he where he stabs him. That that's all intercut with footage that I shot, and then the uh, then I worked with James on the the car driving into the guy uh, who gets pinned against the wall. So you know we, that was all part of the sequence. So the first unit would do their stuff, and they'd leave me uh, that material, and then in the in the um, also in the big uh, scene where uh, the, everybody drives into the square of the, uh, yep. of the town at night, threatens everybody and, and has the conversation with Denzel, they set up the cars to look really cool, but not drive in because you can't drive in and actually do that. And so I had to come up with how to now actually shoot shots that look like could have parked there in, in a very quick sequence. So that was, it was sort of like, well, thanks for, you know, setting me up to fail here. But then again, you know, because I, I edit, 
um, I was able to I had to go walk it out and figure it out and uh, and go, oh, if I pan this in here, in the meantime, the other car could have packed up here and, and I could create the illusion that everything was happening in a fairly natural way, which was fun. And, and you know, the great thing about working with Antoine and, and Bob is that when you do something they like, they really like it. And they're very complimentary and appreciative. And and uh, the editor likes it and uses it. And, and so it's very, you know, it's, it becomes the fun of making movies is when you work with people who, A, are very good. And then when they like what you do and it's a, in the same vein as what they're doing, they're appreciative and it all goes into the movie you know, flawlessly and everybody's happy because it looks like you're able to spend the time that it takes to do those delicate sequences and figure them out. I was wondering uh, when I was watching the film and not whether it was necessarily your shots, but was there much use of drones? Because I I just, I guess in my head, I thought ambulances, a lot of drones and... A lot of drones. We did a lot on emancipation and we did a lot on... uh, on, uh, We had a very good Italian uh, drone team or you know two or three guys yeah. that i would a lot of the driving sequences with them and you know basically i had a drone with me almost all the time and even in the beginning of that sequence where they're going into the town square i i i, I thought it would be kind of a cool shot to start over the water and the camera rushes in towards them as they're driving up the uh, the ramp and all that stuff so you know, i used the drone for that and, and uh and it was intricate because they had to drive because actually the shot didn't end there and it you know coming all the way up through and all the way out and, and revealing the the tableau that the cars set up and so you know we, we did a quite a bit of that a lot of a lot of drone work quite frankly and some of it is fine too there's some shots that i that i didn't supervise uh that, that are in the movie but i did i would say the majority of them i would say but because it was a very hilly very tightly constrained physical location right yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was tough to get around. I mean, there was a one just even to get to the set, just to drive from the hotel to the set. There is a thing because they're blind roads. You have to stop for literally ten minutes. Like a light is ten minutes long, which is an eternity if you're rushing to get to the set because the light's dipping. You know, like when we start doing evening work and stuff like that. And um, it was it was a it was a fun thing to do i had a great time with some of the stunt people leanne yang was uh he originally was going to do some second unit work but i don't know if he liked doing it or it wasn't kind of the the you know i i tend to do more a a drama oriented stuff nicely lit sort of things and moments and stuff like that that are that are you know like establishing the rain and the people in the town square and playing soccer and the kids come home from school and i tend to do that which may be you know, something that that um, he didn't feel as comfortable doing. So uh, that's where I sort of took over. And he was a, a sweet pea about helping me now direct the action scenes that that he normally would have been doing on his own. Uh, and he's a he's he's a pretty spectacular stunt stunt coordinator. And and there was a British gentleman as well. I don't have his name off the top of my head, but he was wonderful to work with. Yeah, I was going to ask you about lighting because there are some just gorgeous shots in this um actually may i also say that the photography of denzel is breathtakingly nice like it's because obviously he's dark skin but there are shots of him against like white backgrounds where i don't know i just felt like the texture of his skin and the the performance that he was giving at those times like i think that the thing about the film that maybe i said earlier it was unexpected is that it there's a lot of character and a lot of photography of character if that makes sense um rather than just sort of action sequences and 
Well, that's a lot of, of Bob. And to be, you know, brutally honest, to, to like dark skin is extremely beautiful. It's yeah. like, it's something that you want to do um, uh, because of the nature of how soft the rap is. And, and, you, and you know, especially when you're doing emancipation, you would just find somebody who had a, a great face and you add a little bit of side backlight and all of a sudden it just has a soulful quality because yeah. it's rendered um and uh um so i it, it, there's that it's kind of built in and denzel just his face is a kind of a roadmap of the scene that he's in um so he doesn't have to say anything it just is there uh just by the way he blinks and looks a little bit and you know bob is expert at capturing that i mean the light that he picks to to uh, photograph him in that particular dramatic moment is usually the right call at the right time and then, you know, I have to follow suit when I do whatever I'm doing and make it look like that. And, and you know, I, I, I do, I've been matching into Bob for years. And so we have kind of the same instinct uh, um, about, you know, how to set up a shot and, and a, in a hard backlight when you need a hard backlight and a passive fill when you need that. And, you know, it's fun when you have something beautiful to photograph and then you add a nice light to it. You, you have everything, you know, you have, uh, um, uh, you know, so it's pretty rewarding um that because you're matching into a beautifully done film I, i've had i won't mention the names of them but i've worked on other films where i'm used to matching it on that level because it's my taste as well and when it's not that um and you're matching into something that isn't as beautifully thought out or isn't the right shot for the and the right light for the drama of that particular moment you sort of get spoiled when people are really good at it they just naturally do it it just there's no big fanfare. It's not like, okay, let me show you how to do this. It's like it just falls off the truck that way because their brain is already on it and just they know exactly what to when you work with somebody who's not that way. And for me to have to try to match that, it's going against my instinct to make it not look as beautiful as it could have looked, to not put the camera in the right spot because it it would, you know, um Being it would basically it would it would it would distract you from the movie and do the opposite of now all of a sudden you notice. You know, um, like if there's a mediocre photography and then all of a sudden you cut to a beautifully lit insert or a little moment with someone's face, it won't fit in. It just yeah. it's like, well, where? So you have to cut. And, and it's painful, you know, in, in a, in a, honestly, in a, in a creative way where you feel weird shooting something beneath what you could do or yeah. what you think is. A, and it's it, I've had my worst days doing that where I um, on one particular movie. I was matching into Bob and on the same day, because we, we when I used to work with New Deal, we do a bunch of second unit and insert work and stuff like that to fill in the movie. And one is with a different cameraman. And but I would do use the same day to save some money. And it would drive me wild because I would put the would normally do it where it looks beautiful. And that's why you'd set up that shot. And then you go, well, this is horribly top front lit and it looks like shit. And I would I and so, like, I have to remove the light I would naturally put in and put in this other instinct. And it was like a, like, it was like a brain shear. It was like, oh, now I'm doing the crappy shot. Okay, great. Let me do that. Oh, so let's go back to gorgeous lighting and uh, an equalizer three, because obviously you're not talking about that instance. Um, so are there go-to lights that you, I mean, in, just in terms of lighting design on those uh, sort of medium close-up stuff, is it like, big, big aerial lights or in particular lights. I think you tended to, 
you, I think you mentioned this earlier, but you tended to visually light in, uh, film into the light quite a lot, backlight, um, especially on the night stuff. But is there sort of a some go-to lights or approaches what? that you took on the film? There's go-to things that I like to use, um, uh, especially when you're when you're doing something with, with somebody like a Bob or a Caleb, is usually a pretty broad uh, light source and the proximity of that light source to the subject and then the way you uh, grip block the light from hitting other objects is makes up, you know, kind of a beautifully lit scene. You know, it's 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 the light, the quality of the light, the distance away. If you take a, a, a soft light and you yep. move it 50, away it's a hard light so it no longer even though you're calling a soft light it isn't because and if you think about it logically the sun is the biggest light in the world except it's so far away it's a pinpoint light source so you know it's 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 size when it gets super close and a lot of times i'll use um and i still do when i do tight close-ups sometimes i'll use a hundred watt light bulb in one of those six dollar clip-on things put a piece of typing paper in front of it and you put it so close to the subject it has a beautiful light source and if i like poke a hole in it i get this kind of um uh i don't know what the best way to describe the light but it, but it has character to it there's brighter and darker areas but it's mostly soft it's getting a soft reflection so you can make up quite beautiful i like to for some reason i'm, I'm nutty I, I love doing inserts too because you can make them into like a, an insert that Ridley Scott would shoot or Tony Scott would shoot or, you know, where it's graphic and cool looking. It doesn't look like an informational thing that you have to kind of get to. It, it, it is also beautiful and, and, and look at. Um, so we use that a lot. I used to use, I haven't done it recently because everybody's sort of switching the, to LED lights, which are good and bad at the same time. I used to use park cans, which was which had a very kind of spectral light source, super bright in the middle, fall off pretty sharply at the end. So it has a kind of a nice quality to it. It's not an evenly lit piece. And that would imitate hard sun or or whatever you want to call hard moonlight. And you saw that a lot on Hugo and any of the films around the Shutter Island. I use that a lot. And uh, um and uh, sometimes you use Dinos, which are giant 25,000 watt uh, uh, speckler uh, uh, individual lights that would be kind of in a park can. And that creates this really kind of beautiful, intense, uh, not sharp, but kind of soft, harsh sunlight that when you position it correctly, it's quite a beautiful light. And then you end up lighting with what we call passive fill, where you don't have to bring a fill light in, you bring in a, a large piece of fabric and the, the light that's backlighting becomes also the soft key light um uh, uh from that so there's like tricks and and things to get at something right away that you know is good looking but it's always about where it is the proximity uh because you could have a horrible looking uh, hard light um but you put it in the right spot and it's beautiful you know uh, hard light like here is horrible put it in the back it's beautiful. And Caleb taught me a couple of tricks that I, I use now, where if you do have to use front light, put a bunch of stuff in front of it. So again, it's kind of specular. It's not an evenly lit thing. It's it's going. You mean things in front of the light now, you mean? Correct. Yeah. Right. And so, and then sometimes, you know, what you do is you just don't light the subject sometimes. Sometimes you light the background and let the silhouette carry the day like in a Gordon Willis did in, in Manhattan, say, you know, in the, in the planetarium or sometimes the best looking light is no light. Uh, and you know, that's the fun part about filmmaking is every opportunity suggests what it should and could be like, including, you know, what we did in emancipation, the underwater scenes, it basically was all lit with park hands, just 
jamming into the into the uh, um, into the uh, aquarium we built, and ended up looking pretty pretty good and graphic and 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 all that. So when you're doing these close lighting setups, like you have a big area light, which obviously looks gorgeous uh, up on a lead actor, on a, on a, an actor like Denzel who's clearly at the top of his game, I presume there's just no problem with them staying on their mark and staying in a relatively small kind of uh, space that works for that lighting setup. But you must also be lighting less sort of, uh, how can I put this, uh, accomplished actors and or extras and even in this film there, there there were some of the faces around the town that I couldn't believe you just called up from from the extras because they had such interesting character but for those people like lighting them surely you can't be quite as precise because they are not going to be quite as precise or am I am I wrong in that when you soft light somebody I mean it's within guidelines when you soft light somebody the exact spot that they're in is not as critical as when you did back in the day the hard light you know, stuff yep. where people mark and that we used to call paramount lighting where you have that little no shadow yep. or you have the light it goes into the crease of the skin. Yep. Very precise. And yep. it's ripped in such a way that if you don't hit that mark, you're not lit or yep. you're not lit beautifully. But in, with a soft light, you have a lot of spread. Like Bob's trick is um, he does what's called a double bounce or a book light is you have a, 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 a muzzle lighting. Uh, What's yeah, that? that's. I was saying, book lighting is a terrific technique. That double bounce uh, effect is just amazing. But that's a that's a big rig, right? Like that's, you know, yes, for people that don't know, that's a double what, kind of. What the good thing is, and and why you know photography is also a science, is that now you have a twenty by, and you have yep. another twenty by. You're bouncing uh, the dinos and big lights into um, this uh, white thing. That's also now now. Uh, uh, bounce lighting into a bigger piece of muslin yep. and it's far away from the actor but it's huge so it has the same thing as a as a soft light up close the same sort of quality in the wrap but you now have quite a distance that you could walk without noticing you're getting closer to the light and getting overexposed and getting further from the light you know the uh if you know anything about like the inverse square law yep it falls twice the distance well if it's pretty far away, twice the distance might be 10 or 12 feet, where if you're, you know, three or four feet away, it'll fall off a stop when you're a foot, a foot from it or two feet from it or three, you know. So the the bigger it is, the further away it is, the more it looks beautiful. You just have to make sure that you don't hit the walls too much. And that's where the grip work comes in of, of boxing in this particular light. I used to, I like to use an A crate because it does it automatically. It's basically yeah. like a... You know, like we get like wine bottles in a box, yeah. And that, that and that essentially eliminates the light from spilling everywhere, and that that's a very quick, beautiful light source. That if you if if to move quickly enough, you bring that in, and you're sort of already there, and uh, you could finesse it a little more. But you know, the the other thing you're talking about is that you know it came from a Frank Capper thing is that any one person on screen at any one time is now the star of that scene. So if it's an extra, don't treat them like they're an extra. You treat them like they're the actor. They're 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 important. Their facial reaction is important. The light on their face is important. You know, so I, I would do a lot of reaction shots and things like that. So I'd make sure that they I would put them in the best light uh, to a make them look good in terms of that they're interesting. Sometimes looking good is not necessarily looking beautiful either. It's 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 looking good for the roughness of their skin or whatever is telling the story. But you treat everything 
you know, like their Denzel Washington, so that, you know, there, there's no letdown when you but, cut to another. But also, in particular, in this film, we had to believe that Denzel had enormous affection for those ordinary people. And so making those ordinary people seem like they were, you know, I mean, like they had to sing on screen with the character of somebody that's from that area, like they didn't look like a Hollywood movie star, but they had to they had to look and and evoke an emotional response. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe that Denzel would be so committed to the town. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, part of it they 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 get inspired by the caliber of, you know, it's no longer I'm just in a movie. I'm I'm in a Denzel Washington movie. Antoine Fuqua is directing it. A three time Academy Award winner, cinematographers like. I mean, so they are there. It changes. It's like people used to be different when they worked with Alfred Hitchcock. It was like why are now Alfred Hitchcock films. So they would also bring their best game no matter what, because they're working with, and the same thing happens with Marty. Every actor is like, they you know, fall over in a dead faint to work with Marty. And so he already gets that. So these guys were, hey, you know, the, the casting there, you know, I was involved in the casting. They would just show up and I would sure. choose. Uh, and I, I might sub pick from that. It's like, well, there's, I'm going to do this reaction because of the way they look. Um, and and uh, they, they were kind of wonderful in that they, it was maybe a story that was closer to them. That's that's the eight because it's the mafia in in the country. So they know what that's about, and somebody was your protector. So something about the story, the way we're told, watching Denzel, who's amazing to watch, uh, and brought everybody up to a certain level. That that um, you you like somebody like me just takes advantage of it as opposed to I'm responsible for it. Yeah, you know, as much as I'd love to think I'm responsible for it, uh, you know, you you really they it's like. Aim a camera at somebody interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, we discussed the lighting in, at length, but also the other thing that's going to get that quality of light to translate to the audience is the lensing on it. Do you want to just discuss the lensing choices that you were using? You know, I, the, the thing that's a little bit hard about it is that when you're kind of hardwired to do kind of what we're doing, the lens choice just comes to you. This is a okay. 50 there's a 75. So it's not quite like a science, like maybe it used to be when you're in film school because you don't know. But once you've kind of done this for a while and you and you have a, a feel for the scene and how much is going to be in focus in the background, it just it's not like I sit down and go, oh, here's the it's just like um, I walk over to the area. It's like 50 millimeter, 75. Um, I like this shot. I want to be a little closer instead of moving in closer. What I'm going to do is get a little further back because lensing also means something in terms of if you're observing somebody or if you're with them, if you're a short lens, very close to somebody, you, the audience are in their, their, their sphere of influence, or you're observing them from a distance and there is value in picking and choosing the right lens choice based on what you want the audience to feel like it, you know if you want them to feel like you're in the middle of a fight you're going to use a short lens very close if you want them to feel like you're watching somebody or appreciating what they're doing but not being noticed you tend to go so it those things are kind of instinctual when you're setting up a scene and you were using size master primes were you or what were you using i so believe so i don't remember you know i honestly i don't remember okay because uh, it was camera you're shooting on camera. you're shooting on an Arri alexa right yeah. yeah, yeah, which I, I, I adore. You know. And I think it was Company Three that did the grade because the the, the, yes. the visuals are beautiful. Yeah, it, it, it's um, you know again uh, you know with the way Bob likes to work, and I've adopted as well is that we have the 
the um, uh, Daly's color grade person with us. And so after I'm done shooting, I'll go in, uh, assuming Bob's not there, and I'll work with the with the grader to say, here's the shot I was doing. Here's Because now you can take advantage of, I lit the scene and I didn't have enough time or didn't choose to use that time to grip the lighting in such a way that I knocked it off the back wall to the degree I would have. You, know, you can work faster if you don't have to do that, but you have to window it. So when you go to set up the shot, it's like, I want this thing to be darker, this thing to be here, uh, this thing I'm doing a stop pull. And so you need to kind of pay attention to that. And you and you create the picture that you didn't totally create, you know, in camera. You know how to do it, but you like, you know, uh, uh, go off on a tangent, like people like Bob and Caleb and people and Gordon Willis and people who grew up totally on film, only having you know, basically, you know, uh, red, green and blue to play with and overall exposure, all of their beautiful work had to be heavily, you know, uh, gripped in terms of the night, uh, the, yeah. the light falling off the background and 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 sort of self vignetting the picture where the face is the, the brightest thing and everything else is falling off in a beautiful way. What took time, you know, it took a lot of time. And when this came in when when the ability to do a di it's like you know what i'll just window it it's like i'll just darken the edges i'll make you a little brighter here and it's even better now because now you could do live roto in resolve where you could say well take the person before we used to do like a soft edge thing now you could actually say the guy in the foreground uh, uh knock him down a little bit and it'll track and make a perfect you know, or perfect for a color correction mat and be able to now selectively, you know, like um, uh, Chivo, one of the great cameramen ever. But part of what he does that's so good is he rotos almost everything in the scene. So he, in the post, directs, this is a little brighter, this is a little darker, this is a little thing, this is a little cooler, this is a little, you know. And so he's painting like Ansel Adams would burn and dodge a, a, a picture uh, with pretty articulate roto, like in the Revenant, they said it was all natural light. It's like it was, except natural light with a four million dollar um, di and, and roto every scene. You know, um, so you but, get. But I guess you know, that it's not just a money thing. I mean, you obviously it is cheaper than not spend a lot of time, but it's actually also helps the actors with their process, right? Because you can yeah. let them stay but, more in character and in the scene. It also becomes less stringent where before, when I was telling you before, where you have to, you know, everything was gripped to that, yep. that one lighting setup. You have about a two foot range to act in, which is the way the style of those movies used to be. If you look at them, yep. they'll walk into a room and talk and they'll, that's the conversation for a while. Then they'll maybe walk somewhere else and they'll stop and talk. So they're doing a lot of their emoting in one spot to take advantage of the way they lit it. Uh, oh, and good. here... So I was going to ask, I don't want to interrupt you, but I just want to ask one other thing because I've been, I keep on forgetting to ask this and I've been having it in my head for the last half an hour. I, I really wanted to ask you, and I didn't want to interrupt you earlier, so I'm going to interrupt you now. Uh, are you shooting always with just one camera or do you like to have shots when you're doing these sequences with like two or three or more cameras in a, in a sequence? I, well, I, normally we prefer one camera okay. for the very, and you have to very carefully select. I won't mention the film, but if you use multiple cameras and you don't use them well, it's terrible because you're putting them in mutually exclusive locations that the shot looks good here, but eight feet over here, it looks like shit. And 
So the fact that you've captured one shot that looks good and the other shot that looks mediocre doesn't fit into a Bob film or a Caleb Dachanel film, whatever. Um, uh, so it depends on, you have to kind of know what you're doing to use multiple cameras well. And you have to, usually they're on a similar axis and they're photographing different things. Um, or you lit two separate portions of the scene that one camera is not seeing, but the other camera is seeing. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's an art form. Um, and so I, it's easy, always easier to shoot with one camera if you don't have the time and you need two or to get double coverage or to do something and you know what you're doing, you can set up two cameras and, and, and do it. When you get into three or four cameras, you get into some shit where it's, you're, 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 there's always a compromise, just even compositionally, you know, just like if I shoot a shot with you and somebody in the background, if I move the camera another two feet to the right, you're blocking the guy in the background. So what shot is that for? You know, and then if I shot that shot, I would move the guy in the background another foot or two over to the left, which now makes this camera look mediocre. So you again, you have to kind of know what you're doing or, or why. Um, uh, so, uh, I, you know, to do quality work, you know, one camera and a carefully placed second camera. Uh, like when you're doing a big setup, like when we were doing Emancipation, I had a ball with Bob because we were outside for one, so it's a, not quite the same stringent nature of it. But we would find other interesting long lens things, and it was fun to um, to operate a shot that we're featuring other little bits and pieces so that what we're doing the master scene uh, uh, and, the, and the carts are rolling up and the horses and all, you have all this texture that is there to be mined and a bunch of uh, uh, extras uh, emoting to a particular uh, uh, thing that's happening when the when the uh, uh, soldiers are sort of um, not invading, but sort of invading the, the, the plantation. Um, uh, there's some there's some great action bits that are going on. And you, there you can get three, four or five cameras if they're properly aimed and they're usually longer lens and you get some really quite beautiful stuff. So, you know, I sort of like couched my uh, my answer in those areas you, you know you 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 can fish and find a good shot yeah well it's been terrific talking to you rob thank you so much welcome my pleasure i hope it's what you hope to hear well it's more than what i hoped to hear uh, it's great yeah no and uh thank you okay. so much see you later. well what a great view of filmmaking and you know this is the thing that i often discuss with people and if you're at sidgraph you might have heard me actually say this at one of the panels that we were at which is if you're a really good visual effects supervisor, then I believe you have a superb knowledge of so many aspects of filmmaking. And you always see that when you see a visual effects supervisor doing a role such as second unit directing. They just have to have the understanding of blocking, of acting, of lighting, of cinematography. And so Rob is just the perfect example of this, a really brilliant visual effects supervisor who also is a just full stop brilliant filmmaker. Well, that's it for this week, but I promise John will be back next time. Thank you so much, Rob, for being on the show. <laughs> and until then, I'm Mike Simmel. Thanks so much for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.